I V M. It has been a long and bloody war, but today, in late August 70 CE, it is going to end the way that all wars end, with flames, destruction, rape, enslavement, looting, and a grand parade in a distant capital city. The general Titus Flavius Vespasianus, son of the newly crowned Roman Emperor, watches with grim determination as his soldiers inch closer and closer to the innermost wall of Jerusalem, to the most sacred spot of the Jewish people. They have made the terrible mistake of rebelling against the might of the Roman Empire. They thought that the death of the last emperor and the civil wars that followed. Were their chance at freedom, and for months they had kept the Romans at bay while their own city was torn by desperate internal strife. But in the end, it was not enough. Within the innermost wall is a temple, a massive building of marble where sacrifices used to be performed daily to the god Yahweh, the only god of the Jewish people. No animal sacrifices have been performed in a while. Because there are no animals left in the city, except for the desperate specimens of Homo sapiens who stand on the walls, throwing rocks and javelins and anything they can find at another group of slowly advancing Homo sapiens. But it is not enough. In the chaos and the flames, a breach is made, and the Romans run a mock through the temple, slaughtering the last defenders like lambs at a sacrifice. They enter the most sacred shrine in all Judaism and seize the sacred objects, which only the high priest was allowed to see with their bloody, sooty hands. And then Titus appears. A message has to be sent. He thinks people must learn the hard way that Rome will allow no questioning of its authority. This temple to the Jewish God, he has decided, will be transformed into a temple to the Roman Emperor. But before that can be done, he hears a report that the Jews have set fire to the temple to try and fight the Roman soldiers, and now the temple is burning out of control. Despite his efforts to save the ancient edifice, it burns to the ground. The furious Titus orders all who are left in Jerusalem to be slaughtered or enslaved because a message has to be sent anyway. Even after the slaughter. A staggering ninety-seven thousand people are sold into slavery, and even now, two thousand years later, the temple in Jerusalem has still not been rebuilt. Among the people that Titus's soldiers slaughtered on that brutal day were a small, insignificant cult called the Christians. I'm Anirudh Kanisati, and this is Echoes. In the last two episodes of Echoes of India, we've watched the conquests of the Kushana Empire spread through Central Asia into Northern India, and watched how its rulers followed a policy of religious syncretism, integrating the many cultures and religions of the Indian subcontinent into an edifice of royal power. In this. Our final episode on Gandhara for this season, we're looking at a different bunch of ancient Indians. 
not those who ruled over our ancestors, but instead our ancestors themselves. But to understand ancient Indians, we need to first understand another group of ancient humans, the Romans. A bunch of very interesting things were happening in the world by the turn of the first millennium. I've said in earlier episodes that the Roman Empire had emerged, blah blah blah, and that was great for Indian trade and so on and so forth. Cool beans, but that's the economic impact of a political process. This episode is about the cultural impact of it. And so we once again return, like we did in episode 4, to the surprising globalization of the ancient world and just how similar it can be to the modern world. So what could have the cultural impact of this constant imperialist warfare and the brutal bloody rebellions that it put down have been? What were the impacts of the destruction of cultic centers and the construction of new ones? What really happened when these random Latin-speaking dudes from one city in Europe showed up in West Asia? How did Rome change the way that Asia thought? And for that matter, how did Asia change the way that Rome thought? Well, here we go. Remember how Titus had a bunch of early Christians killed? Now in the first century CE, the Christians really weren't that important to the Romans. But since they're really important today, and most people on earth are familiar with some aspects of Christianity, let's use bits of it to look back into this ancient time. Now what is the aspect of Christianity that we're most familiar with? I would say definitely its founder figure and namesake, Jesus Christ, which literally means Jesus the Chosen in Greek. Jesus, whether you believe in him or not, is definitely a very important religious figure. Early Christians considered him to be a messiah. He had been sent by God to usher in a new age. After the Romans, well, sort of crucified him, they shifted to believing that he would come down to earth at some later point in the future, when the world was all messed up and fixed things then. Yeah? Now let's see how the Romans saw the world. The Romans, as I said in episode 9, had a weird thing for Greek philosophy. In Stoicism, one of the philosophies of the Greeks, history is driven by fortune, fate, and Logos, the universal divine principle. This usually leads to chaos and war and whatnot, but the forces are also driven to provide a savior who would transform them into peace, fortune, and well-being in an endless cycle of order and chaos, rise and fall. Now, from the Roman perspective, that had already happened because the Emperor Augustus had ended the civil wars of the late 1st century BCE and started an era of prosperity and Roman dominance across the western part of Europe. So to them, technically, Augustus was their messianic figure. So you kind of get why the emperors were so obsessed with calling themselves Divi Filius, son of God, and building temples to themselves. And you also get why their trading partners the rulers of the Kushana Empire in faraway India called themselves Devaputra because they were trying to convey a similar set of meanings to their subjects and to their contemporaries. What does this tell us about the culture of the first two centuries CE? It looks like increasingly desperate political competition was driving common people to believe in and worship savior figures. And since this broader Greek philosophy was pretty prevalent in West Asia thanks to the conquest of Alexander that I mentioned in episode 4, it's quite possible that this was also something that elites believed in, or at least definitely exploited. You really have to love how inventive people are, no? So one of the most interesting of these savior god figures is a chap called Mithras. 
Now Mithras was a figure that only men were allowed to worship with secret rituals in underground caves carefully painted with icons of the cult. Mithras was also believed to be an eastern deity with some similarities to a Zoroastrian god called Mithra who was worshipped in Persia at around the same time. According to scholars, the cult of Mithras was based on these savior ideas but also on Roman perceptions of that Zoroastrian god. and the romans weren't the only ones who were observing and being exposed to these political and cultural exchanges and perceptions either so let's leave west asia for now and return to gandhara where an equally interesting god is waiting to say hello to us let me introduce you to india's very own ancient era savior maitreya in gandhara maitreya was one of the most popular deities Everywhere you looked you'd have seen him with his nice fashionable mustache and peaceful expression with his hands carefully arranged in particular gestures or mudras meant to communicate his peaceful nature and the nature of the spiritual attainment that he offered Since most Gandharans were Buddhists and they were also exposed to the broader cultural idea of a savior god Maitreya is often represented in a similar context because Maitreya is not a Buddha you see at least not yet He is the next Buddha. He is a Buddha to be or a Bodhisattva. In the very earliest Buddhist communities, future Buddhas weren't a big deal at all. In fact, for at least a generation after the Buddha died, Buddhists didn't even see him as a god. But sooner or later, they started to venerate him as one, and as is the nature of human beings, stories began to emerge. First, stories emerged about previous Buddhas. One of the first to show up in this repertoire was a Buddha called Dipankara, the lamp bearer, whose story goes as follows. 100,000 years ago, there was a Bodhisattva, a young Brahmin man called Sumedha, who was on the brink of enlightenment. One day he heard the Buddha Dipankara was visiting a nearby city and went there to see him. As he saw the Buddha with his crowd of disciples with an expression of pure nirvana on his face his heart swelled he prostrated himself on the muddy earth and laid out his head for the Buddha to walk over in that moment Sumedha could have achieved enlightenment but instead he told Dipankara that he too wished to become a Buddha i will seek the highest complete awakening he said I will embark on the ship of dharma and take the great mass of people across the ocean of samsara. The pleased Dipankara then prophesied that this young man would be reborn eons hence as prince Siddhartha Gautama. And so the story goes the bodhisattva Sumedha went through dozens hundreds of rebirths. He was born as a merchant as a prince multiple times as elephants as monkeys as a whole variety of different sorts of animals and people in different social situations and as he was reborn again and again he learned the 10 great perfections that are needed before one can become a buddha at least according to later buddhist traditions these stories of his rebirth are the famous jataka stories which most of asia now knows a vast repository of tales to which every culture added new elements which buddhist laity would hear every time they went to a monastery on a festival day to hear moral sermons from the monks there on days like this the people of gandhara would gather to drink strong wine that had been fermented under the supervision of monks shocking i know but remember that back then being part of a community 
and reflecting those fun-loving habits of people was just as important to monks as the more serious moralizing and preaching. So in Gandhara, Deepankara was the Buddha of the past aeon. In fact, he's supposed to have met Sumedha somewhere in Afghanistan, at least according to Gandharan traditions. Siddhartha was the Buddha of this aeon. And our friend Maitreya is the Buddha of the next aeon. That means in this aeon, he is a Bodhisattva. And just as Jesus is, we are told, chilling out with God in heaven until he returns to earth, Maitreya is also now chilling out in the Tushita heaven, learning the last of the ten great perfections. And once he's figured that out, he will come down to earth and enlighten our descendants. Or at least that's what ancient Gandharans believed. This sort of dual understanding of Maitreya, as both a Bodhisattva today and as a Buddha in the future, guided the way that his worshippers went about praying to him. In one form of statues from Gandhara, he appears wearing a turban, symbolizing his role as the king of the Tushita heaven. In this form, he was probably worshipped with fire and burned incense and offerings, which worshippers may have believed guaranteed them a spot next to him in heaven. In the other form of statues, his hair is in a parted bun, signifying that he's no longer a king, he is a Buddha. In this form, worshippers would have asked to be reborn next to him when he came down to earth so they could experience enlightenment at his hands, just as their own ancestors had supposedly at the hands of Gautama Buddha. In general, Maitreya also wears long flowing robes gathered into one hand. That's an iconographic element first seen in West Asian saviour cults, so we know for sure that Gandharan sculptors were getting some ideas from there and, more importantly, that their audience at home would have already been familiar with. Globalization, as you can see, works in strange ways. Now, Maitreya images were super popular in Gandhara and people did pray to them, but they weren't really the center of worship there. That honor was reserved for relics, for bits and pieces of supposed remains of the Buddha. His begging bowl, for example, or supposed bones, even though technically he was supposed to have been cremated after he died. Which means, of course, that there were some Gandharan scamsters who may have made a lot of money by manufacturing these fake relics. And since Gandhara was, as I said, a major world trading hub, it was Gandharan ideas of Buddhism, of relic cults and bodhisattvas that spread into Central Asia and China and from there to Japan. A great example of relic scamming is whoever made a carving of Buddha's supposed footprints in Tirat in the Swat Valley, more than a thousand kilometers from the place where the historical Buddha actually walked. These footprints were worshipped for centuries and were attested to by multiple Chinese pilgrims who spent years walking there and were overwhelmed by a vision of the great man's feet. Who knows who that genius scamster was? who put them there and what an interesting life he or she must have led. Now if relics were the real center of worship, why on earth do we see so many sculptures in Gandhara? I mean sure people were manufacturing them for some foreign customers, but more importantly there was a huge domestic audience that was interested in paying for them as well. Basically near a stupa which was sanctified by these holy relics, rich donors would set up an image shrine. Sometimes if they were really cheap, they just build it right next to an existing shrine and we know that because they share a single wall. The richer the donor, the larger the shrine would be. They could range in size from a teeny little one to a massive chapel. 
within the chapel itself would be carefully selected relief panels and paintings which portrayed particular scenes from the life of the buddha or perhaps the jatakas because of what they meant to the patron and of course there would be the grand statue itself a stunning fusion of indian and persian and greek elements imprints of the cosmopolitanism of the time Though we need to do further studies to confirm this, it's also very likely that the statues were painted in gaudy colors like you see in modern temples. I know it's shocking because wouldn't the statues look much cooler if they were just elegant gray stone? Yes, but that's a modern aesthetic idea. Microscopic analyses of contemporary Roman statues show that yes, they were painted and very cheesily, mind you, because they had to appeal to the people after all. The same is very likely true of ancient Indian statues as well. Ah, religion. One just has to love how much it tells you about your ancestors. The rich, the poor, the uplifted, the downtrodden, the great, the small. Some of them leave a footprint in the river of time, and some do not. Actually, mostly the rich do. But at least we have some idea that the poorer worshippers were coming to the shrines that the rich built. We can rediscover their traces and the things they owned, the things they prayed to, the things they paid others to make for them. But what about those who didn't own anything? What about those who didn't raise a sword? Those who never worked for some government? Those who just peacefully sat by the shrines and watched people in all their diversity go about their humdrum lives? Do such people matter to history? How do we judge what the standard is for a valuable human life? Is it the traces that they leave in a world that they don't remain in, or is it the deeper satisfaction that they may have felt? the satisfaction of a life well lived a life lived in joy and peace with oneself a vast life just them and the universe i don't know the answer i just have lots of questions but i think there are some gandharans who did have answers because you know how buddha before buddhism was a thing before he became a great preacher before he became a god was just some guy who was disillusioned with society He couldn't handle the bullshit inherent in humdrum social life with all its rules and norms artificially constructed by human minds to make civilization function in certain ways. And so here is to me the most fascinating thing about Gandharans. Sure there were people like the kings, the rich, the poor, the ones caught up in the strife and heat and noise and madness of their daily urban lives. But there were also those who questioned. Those who like you may have sat in some ancient traffic jam in the rapidly growing cities of gandhara working in a job they hated watching all the pointless consumption around them and asked what am i doing with my life alongside with their alliance with the rich and powerful the buddhists also retained ties to people like this and to them especially for them gandharan monks wrote in the gandhari language what they needed to do Here's a quote from a text called the Rhinoceros Sutra. Leave behind your sons and wives and money, all your possessions, relatives and friends. Abandoning all desires, wander alone like the rhinoceros. The crowd will always make demands on you whether you live or stay or walk or wander, treasuring freedom which they do not value. wander alone like the rhinoceros like the lion that never startles like the wind that cannot be caught in a net like the lotus that is unstained by mud 
wander alone like the rhinoceros and we know that there were people like this there were people who followed this they were very very different from the royal cultic political buddhists that we've seen so often in this season of the podcast and the buddhists knew that too they called them pratyeka buddhas singular buddhas who were not part of the tradition of teachers who were not maitreya but were certainly enlightened they were important figures to the religion though they obviously didn't get as much funding as the more visible aspects of religion such as statues sometimes these strange individuals who would actually live in rough huts in the wilderness emerging only to meditate would come back to monasteries they would get medical care maybe attend some lectures talk to teachers and then they would go back to the wilderness who knows what they would have thought looking at people going about their lives worried about making their mark on history what even is history to such a person is it everything the story of how they became them or was it to them that even that everything was nothing such is the complex beautiful universe that they lived in the same universe that you and i inhabit right now so what does all this tell us about ancient gandhara and for that matter about us today you see humanity hasn't really changed that much we still have the color the noise the religions and the disillusionment we are exposed to the same forces we react the same ways and keeping aside the metaness so we don't end up running away to the himalayas something was brewing in ancient india at this time despite the thriving power and diversity of gandharan buddhism at its peak despite maitreya the savior and the greek looking buddhas and repurposed multicultural gods of the kushanas another trend was emerging deep down ancient yet still evolving adapting new elements becoming something else even those forest dwelling renunciants would have been exposed to it though none of them could have understood really its true implications for even in the wildest of the wilderness they would have met ascetics covered in ash meditating rigorously on the wildest and most ancient of indian gods shiva's time was coming and with it was coming hinduism tune in next week for the last episode of the season when echoes of india moves at last to north india if you like this podcast why not leave us a rating and review and don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the ivm network you can listen to us on the ivm podcast app or ivmpodcast.com while you're at it follow us on twitter and instagram at @ivmpodcast and if you have questions or comments on this episode of echoes i'm at @akanisetty on twitter and @anirudhadevaraya on instagram